Hello and welcome to the Startup Operator Podcast. I'm Roshan Karepa. Every week, I speak to founders, operators, and investors in the Indian startup ecosystem to understand what it takes to build and scale the next unicorn. If you haven't done so already, please follow or subscribe to the Startup Operator and rate and review us on your favorite platforms. This week, we have Anubhav Jain of Rupify joining us. Anubhav is a three-time entrepreneur and at Rupify, he's building a very interesting buy now, pay later product for SMEs. In this conversation, we speak to Anubhav about his learnings from the startup journey, the credit landscape in India, how Anubhav and his team have thought through their solution, what it takes to work with SMEs uh, in India and his thoughts of building during a less than ideal macro environment. This is a fascinating chat and I'm sure you'll like it. So let's get started. Hey Anubhav, welcome to the Startup Operator Podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. Thanks, Roshan. Excited to be here. Yeah. So as I was saying, I think Rupify is such an interesting business. Uh, I can't wait to dive into all of the nuances and really talk uh, at length about what you guys are doing. But before that, you know, let's give our listeners a sense of your journey so they can understand you better. Uh, you spent the early part of your career in Amex. Uh, and since then, you've started up thrice, right? Uh, first with StudyBud, which was in the edtech space, uh, then Cubera, which offered personal loans, and now with Rupify. Uh, which is uh, a BNPL for small businesses uh, specifically, right? And anytime I talk to serial entrepreneurs, I always begin with this question, right? I mean, because they seem to have a laundry list of things that they've learned, uh, things that they should do, and most importantly, not do as well. So I, I would love to learn from you, you know, what are some lessons from your entrepreneurial journey? Sure. I think uh, every startup you do would give you a whole lot of learnings in terms of things that need not be done primarily. Because what you need to do is something you figure out on the way. So I think from both my startups, a couple of highlights have been one in terms of how to build the the right set of team, uh, what kind of team skills do we require? What kind of complementary skills should we have on, on the co-founder side? How do you build the co-founding team? That's something I learned uh, through various stages of my journey with Kubera, where uh, we were fortunate to have created a very good team in the company. In this, in the journey at StudyBud, I think what I learned is how sometimes you may have the best product or you may have the best execution, but timing and market is also very important. Understanding your customer, whether they need this right now or not, how big that market is. Are you reading only soft signals and creating uh, something which is probably only solving needs for a small set of population. Those are learnings that that I think were very useful for me from the previous two startups. Yeah, I kind of relate to that, right? I mean, so I was in EdTech around 14 years back and believe me, I mean, it wasn't as sexy at all, right? I kind of think back as to what would have happened if, you know, we would have started maybe in, you know, three or four years back, right? I mean, when this whole space got heated up. You had an interesting journey with Kubera, right? I mean, where uh, what I heard was that you had outsourced the technology, you know, aspect to a different firm, uh, right? So in a sense, I mean, you didn't have technology in-house and that led to a lot of problems as such. But when I look at Rupify, you guys are you know, completely tech-led, right? I mean, you're so strong on your tech with, with what you're doing right now. So that process of, you know, attracting the right tech talent, you know, getting, you know, tech co-founder on board, et cetera, what was the journey like, you know, how do you make that, you know, an intrinsic part of your team right now? Yeah. And I think that was a big, uh, big switch for me, honestly, Russian, because StudyBud was also a very ops and people heavy business. And at Kubera, what we could not solve through technology, because we didn't own technology, we were solving through processes. 
through people, through other parts of the business. But the learning from Kubera was the reason why the company could not scale beyond a point was because uh, we didn't own technology. And at some point it became a roadblock in terms of how fast can we scale. Post Kubera exit, Rosh and I made a point to myself that I would not let this happen in whatever I do next. Technology is at the core of disruption, especially in financial services, if we are trying to solve a problem and if that problem requires uh, large scale adoption, I think technology plays a big role in enabling a lot many things. So during the phase of around 18 months from Kubera acquisition to really figuring out what I wanted to do, I started networking and reaching out to folks which were very strong in product and engineering. So I started reaching out to people on LinkedIn. I probably would have sent out more than 300 LinkedIn requests to some of the very senior or mid-level folks. I looked at people with the right educational background. I looked at people who have built companies from a scalable, large engineering architecture standpoint. I looked at people who have created uh, systems which are robust and currently supporting millions of users. So all your you know usual suspects, people who have been at some kind of a leadership position in engineering at top fintech companies, top e-commerce companies, top consumer internet companies, started meeting them. So out of like 300 requests that I sent, probably I think 100 odd would have replied back to me. Some 60 odd I personally met. And this is something I did across the country. I flew down to Bombay. I flew down to Delhi from Bangalore to specially meet these guys, understand their journey, how they have created the best teams and the best technology led products in their organizations. And that gave me some idea in terms of what I wanted in my tech co-founder, what I wanted the culture to be, or what I wanted the mindset to be in my next company. It was a long process. I think out of those 60 conversations, I think seven or eight turned out to be quite serious and eventually out of those is where I found my co-founders who are presently part of Rupify. Right. Just delving on that, right? Because I think that's a very, you know, relevant and important problem, right? I mean, indeed, I think, you know, every day I run into a lot of folks, you know, who have uh, all of these business ideas, but they really need that co-founder, tech co-founder to take that to market and make it a reality, right? So what is your advice for someone who is uh, out there, you know, trying to search for this uh, partner or co-founder, right? I mean, I think your method of reaching out to all of these uh, relevant folks on LinkedIn was one thing. Is there anything culturally that they should be uh, aware of? Is there uh, like a time period for you to really understand these folks before you sort of jump into a startup with them? I mean, any guidelines that you would, uh, uh, you know, you would uh, give to people who are looking for tech co-founders? Yeah, so I think uh, could be multiple approaches. What I've seen is people have always found their co-founders either in their previous work environments. So let's say I have worked in corporate before. I worked at American Express. I worked at EXL. There are a lot of folks who I admired, who I worked with at various levels. Uh, if at any point I found somebody on the technology side of things who I worked with, that's I think a good person to you know, initiate a conversation if you, if you think they have the right skills, right? So ultimately it's your network that you look up to either it's your, uh, educational network. So let's say from your own institution or from your college, somebody, uh, who can, uh, who can suggest someone in the network to come and speak to you so that you can explore different ideas. Uh, but let's say you are 
from a non-engineering background and you really don't have that kind of network, uh, then I think it's uh, it's mostly left to your professional network. Can you find this through uh, through common friends? One thing I think which has which is these days working out is uh, smart business folks who have ideas but are only looking for tech co-founders. They reach out to uh, investors who help them find the right founders to work with because uh, that's your meeting point. Right. You always will have people who are strong on business looking for a tech co-founder, but it's also the vice versa as well. One thing that people should keep in mind is that the other person should have the same passion and the inclination for the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, for sure. That, you know, founder matchmaking, right? I mean, I, I've actually seen it work in recent times, you know, I was not a major fan of that earlier, but I think the ecosystem has matured. Um, and at this point of time, I think there are enough uh, folks who are equally serious about starting up and also have the right skill sets and so on. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty interesting. Let's talk about the landscape in which you operate, right? Uh, credit access is such a fundamental need. Uh, it's uh, really what powers the economy. I, I know things are improving, you know, with formalization and also startups and NBFCs now looking at SMEs with a lot more renewed interest, right? But when you looked at this market from the outside, because you were on the personal loans uh, side of things, right, earlier, what appealed to you enough that, you know, you quit your job as uh, the head of SME lending at uh, Razorpay and decided to start up? What what were the special insights that you uncovered about this market that said that that kind of uh, you know prompted you to start rupify yeah so i think uh, two parts to that journey one is as i was building something on the personal loan side on the consumer side of things what i realized at kubera is uh, there is a much larger problem to be solved on the sme side because we were at all times getting interest from customers who were not salaried uh, individuals who were self-employed but they were still individuals and at Kubera we had a conscious business decision that we would only serve the salaried customers because of you know how lenders approach that segment or how you underwrite that segment for various reasons but what I realized is that you know today if you look at the Indian consumer everybody's going after them banks are going after them fintechs are going after them a lot of other e-commerce and consumer internet companies are going after them but when it comes to SMEs, that's the segment where there are far more problems to be solved and there is very little access. So this is something Rosh and I had decided the moment I was quitting Kubera that the next thing, whatever I do will be on the SME side. And Razorpay was also something on similar lines. The only, I think, learning I got while at Razorpay was that the company had already become quite big and I was not getting that cake or the feeling of really solving something which is a large problem solving something from scratch adding value as a as an operator in that ecosystem so it was just a matter of six months where you know while Razorpay had a great culture and it's a good company I mean they have also grown multiple times since I left in a very short period of time so kudos to them but but I think I realized that maybe that's not the fit for me because I wanted to do more zero to one one to hundred and Razorpay was already at 100 and it was a different different culture and uh, setting that was there. So I think Razorpay really helped me in also connecting to a, a great network of product and engineering folks because they have a very strong uh, product first engineering led culture. So that was great. 
I learned a lot in terms of how to structure teams, how they have created a very product mindset in the entire organization. So those were good learnings, I think, for me, uh, which are very helpful in how we are building Groupify. Awesome. You know, before we delve into some of the nuances of uh, the way you operate at uh, Groupify, let's give a uh, let's give our listeners a sense of what Rupify does, right? I mean, could you speak about some of the common use cases that you're solving for right now? Sure. So I think uh, as we started, we wanted to solve for uh, financial product access for small businesses in India. As we started going deeper and researching into SMB space, we realized that working capital is the biggest requirement when it comes to any financial product for small businesses. And to solve for working capitals, capital, we wanted to solve it in a way that we are not really ending up giving loan in the bank account of the customer as a typical lender. We wanted to solve it at source. We wanted to solve it on a day-to-day basis for them. And that's where we decided that, you know, wherever this small business is transacting on a daily basis, why can't we embed something in that transaction journey? That's why we speak a lot about embedded lending or embedded finance. It's nothing but if, you know, I am a small business and I'm buying, let's say inventory, or buying raw material from a manufacturer or a supplier. Rupify comes in and says, hey, during this purchase process, I can help you get capital to power this transaction for you. So it's not very different from supply chain finance. It's not very different from trade credit that currently goes on in the ecosystem. All we are doing is we are formalizing the whole thing and we are using technology to streamline the entire experience. So. To give you one simple use case, if let's say there are thousands of Kirana stores who are buying their inventory or supplies from a B2B marketplace, which is selling uh, FMCG products, Rupify comes in and says that, hey, as a Kirana store, we will help you buy your inventory on credit so that you can use that time period to sell this stock in your shop and generate revenue and then pay back. It's a short term working capital credit line that we give to these small businesses, but it's not very different from buy now and pay later. So that's why we went ahead and we called it a B2B buy now pay later, but technically it's not very different from any working capital or supply chain finance solution. Right. Yeah. Working capital is uh, really the lifeline of uh, an SME, right? I mean, it's a, most of these businesses are in the cash rotation business. And uh, so this is really critical. Um, I, I also kind of love your approach of solving the problem, right? Saying that, hey, I mean, I won't be the person actually lending, uh, right? I, rather, I mean, I'll be the tech layer in between and be that embedded finance layer. In fact, I mean, I remember reading this uh, Angela Strange article on Anderson Horowitz, uh, which said every company will become a fintech company. And I was really wowed by the concept actually, right? Can you talk a little more about your approach to the solution, right? I mean, what what did you guys discuss? I mean, you identified a, a problem saying that, hey guys, um, look, SMEs need working capital loans and currently, you know, not a lot of people are doing that. But from there to, you know, how do you end up with, uh, you know, saying that, okay, I will be a tech layer in between. How do you, how do you sort of brainstorm and default to that, right? Because that, that doesn't seem to me like the most obvious sort of uh, way to solve the problem that you were attacking. So what were some of the things that you debated? What were the pros and cons? I mean, what did that whiteboard look like? You know, I mean, when you guys were sort of talking about it. Yeah. So I think so. As we started looking at SME space, what we wanted to do was solve for long tail SME. Now, long tail SMEs means smaller ticket size, shorter tenures, lesser money to be made, right? As we got into that segment, we realized that technology A has to be at the forefront. 
and B, going directly to these customers means higher acquisition costs, asking for too much data, which means underwriting being difficult and collections being a capability which will take years to build. That really prompted us to think of during that entire research and whiteboarding, embedded finance came as the top thing to do because through an embedded finance partner, you will acquire at almost zero cost. You'll get data about those transactions, which can help you underwrite better because now you have history and collections also you can do through the partner. So, I mean, I've tried to shorten that entire journey that we had in, in a few minutes here, but uh, that was essentially the approach because whatever we looked at from a low ticket, low cost SME working capital model, it all came back to that. Is there an anchor that helps you solve for, and anchor led models have been there for ages. So we just converted that into more of a digital model and started working with B2B marketplaces as the first year. Right. There's also this nuance of different industries, different businesses and so on, right? I mean, the way someone might operate a pharmacy chain will be very different from the way someone, you know, operates a supermarket from the way someone operates, you know, manufacturing setup, right? I mean, uh, when we say that, you know, India has about, I don't know, 40 to 60 SMEs, million SMEs, right? I mean, it's a very catch-all term, right? I mean, so again, how do you identify the segment that would most relate to what you are offering, right? And what are some of the nuances that you figured that, hey, I mean, business X in industry Y does this and then, you know, we have to look at them this particular way and then, you know, the their counterparts in a different industry would do something else and this is how we sort of have to look at them. And also, I mean, just the nuances of incorporating all of this in your product, right? Uh, very seamlessly. So how, how does all of that work? So I think, SME is a very, very broad term. Like you said, it's kind of catch-all. Every business is an SME. And in, in fact, if you go by Indian government definition of MSME, right? A five crore turnover business is an MSME. A 50 lakh turnover business is an MSME. A hundred crore turnover business is also an MSME, right? Of course, they divide it between micro, small and medium and large. But, but these are all small businesses ultimately. So what we first did is we looked at the larger cut in terms of their operation. We saw that out of 70 million SMEs in India, roughly around 25 to 30 million plus were retailers. And if you look at the history, 2010 to 2020 was decade of consumer internet and e-commerce. E-commerce enabling a product coming to your doorstep is also requiring a lot of infrastructure to be built from that retailer to back to the brand, right? So we clearly could see that while the last decade was about consumer internet and e-commerce, this decade is going to be about B2B and SaaS. So wherever there are B2B transactions happening, especially in commerce, that is where we need to be present. We could see the Udan example playing out very well that being one of the pioneers of B2B, digital B2B being disrupted. And in 2019, when we were, you know, almost finalizing Rupify idea, our hypothesis was that in the next five years, we'll have 10 more brands being built in India, 10 more unicorns being created. And that has actually come out to be true. Uh, if you look at today. So our simple hypothesis was e-commerce removed a lot of middlemen and explored inefficiencies in the system to give the customer uh, a lot of value. B2B digital commerce will do the same. 
in supply chain. That's how, you know, we drill down from complete SME base. Uh, yeah, uh, I think, you know, there's uh, really a lot of lessons to learn from that, right? I mean, oftentimes, I mean, entrepreneurs get excited by the size of a market, right? But uh, uh, I think really, really stress testing that, right? And figuring out who you are absolutely relevant for and who will, you know, uh, who will miss you if you are not here today, right? I mean, I think that's really important. There's a huge demand for credit, right? I mean, there's no doubt about it, right? I mean, India is extremely credit starved. Uh, but there are also a bunch of people entering this space, right? And, you know, like they say, all roads lead to lending. Do you think at some point, you know, this will kind of get commoditized? Is there a fear that that would happen? And if so, you know, uh, how would you sort of defeat that? What are some, what are some, you know, things that you will have to add in order to have like a real lasting moat in Rupify? Sure. So I think two very important things. Credit to be commoditized, I think there's still a long way to go because uh, if you compare credit penetration in India versus some of the other uh, developed economies, it's it's far yeah, from yeah. where it should be. It will take, I think, probably a decade for us to be. So that's number one in terms of, uh, you know, when do we see credit being commoditized or if at all we will. If you ask for my personal opinion, I think India is so diversified and uh, uh, they're so fragmented in terms of a lot of these customer segments and the use cases that, to really commoditize one size fits all kind of a solution in India, especially in lending is not going to be easy. And it's not a winner takes all market. Even if it happens, the sheer size of the market today is having so many large, if you look at NBFC side, I think a lot of FinTech founders or lending founders would consider Bajaj finance as an idol in terms of how yeah. they want to see their business grow. If you talk to some other founders who have been in this space for long, they would consider uh, Mr. Aditya Puri and HDFC Bank as a, a benchmark in terms of how in 20 years a financial institution can be. So I would say it's a long journey to create a meaningful and large and sustainable lending business. It's not five years. It's going to take a decade. It's going to take a long time because financial services is about trust. To build that customer trust and longevity is, is going to take time. For us at Rupify, I think what we are keeping in mind is a customer experience is underrated in India. So in financial services, customer experience can become a moat. So we are focusing a lot on ensuring that whichever customer goes with Rupify, they always remember Rupify for the great, for the great experience that we provide. Uh, even if we provide it at a premium, that's number one. Number two is we try to solve whatever we can solve in the entire customer life cycle through technology. But having said that, we understand that financial services in India, especially in SME, is not a technology-only business because you need to have a physical presence as well. And Rupify does have a physical presence in various parts of the country. So I think if as a fintech founder, you understand that you can't be a pure tech company or you can't be a pure services business, it's going to be a mix of everything. To some extent, there would be one core DNA that the company would have. I think that's the approach we are taking. So we don't divert, we don't go away from the core DNA, which is we are a tech layer, we are an enabler of this whole ecosystem. But then wherever we see that the lenders or financial institutions don't have the right capability to do something, we step up and we provide that. The interesting thing also is that, you know, your customer acquisition costs costs are, you know, effectively 
non-existent, right? I mean, because, you know, you again partner with these marketplaces or brands and so on, and you plug into their ecosystem. That also, I think it's it's just a genius idea, I think, right? Do you see that scaling up at some point of time? I mean, would you, would you have a Rupify lending arm or something of that sort? I mean, would you think that you know, you, you would add some of that, uh, you know, going forward. So honestly, Roshan, I think we would continue to work the way we are working. We've created a place for ourselves by being more an embedded partner for these B2B marketplaces. These B2B marketplaces till date have never looked at us as owning their customer mm. because their customer, their data is what we ride on. And we want to keep it that we want to ensure that we give enough comfort to all our B2B marketplace partners that this is your customer. You are servicing this customer by providing him this credit product through us. So we are just a partner. We are just a service provider for you. And we are not going to any day become a competition or a, or a threat to your customer's experience with you or your customer's ongoing business with you. That is the reason why simple things like Rupify does not have their own app today. Whatever we do, whatever interactions we do with the customer is within the B2B marketplace app. It's all embedded inside. We don't own that customer or that experience. Of course, that experience layer is something we have created, but that we have created in partnership with the marketplace. Communication that we do to the customer. It's all done in a way that we are almost like a white label partner for them. So if today I have to call a B2B marketplace customer, which is a Kirana store for collections of his outstanding amount, we don't call them and say, Hey, we are calling from Rupify. We call them and say that, Hey, we are calling you on behalf of this XYZ B2B marketplace for collecting your credit that you have used to buy on this marketplace. So the marketplace is always at the forefront. Rupify always takes a backseat in terms of uh, visibility. And that's fine. I mean, as a service provider. Rupify is, if you imagine Rupify, it's an intersection of payments, credit and SaaS. And as a SaaS business, I'm not really trying to own that customer. My customer is the B2B marketplace. Right. What are some things that you're then thinking of adding on the product front? You know, what are, you know, what are some needs that you've uh, sort of perceived from the, you know, customers that you work with that will probably translate into your product roadmap over the next 18 months or so? So we've just uh, ventured out and understood uh, the strength of our B2B BNPL, which is that it's a very high engagement product. It's like a payments instrument. While there is lending involved for a retailer, a 15 day credit is the usual way of doing business. So they use Rupify like the default payment method. Now, the moment I say it's a payment method, that's where we started thinking that what are the other payment methods that a B2B transaction normally sees and that SMBs use. That led us to launch our own B2B checkout product. So this is something we've just launched last month. What it enables is all of B2B transaction use cases, which are currently broken and offline, both in terms of payment capture or in terms of multi-mode payments or in terms of reconciliation, we solve all that. So essentially, whenever two businesses transact, we want to be that payment layer and on that, on top of that payment layer, we will add credit. That's something we are, uh, working on right now we just launched it and that's going to be the focus for the next 12 months right the other nuance is that you know lending is essentially a collections business right i mean it's how, how much you're able to really collect from your customers and so when you talk about growth i mean you also have to be mindful of the kind of customers that you're acquiring while it is you know low ticket if i understand correctly you're lending anywhere between rupees 10,000 to around maybe 
two lakhs or five lakhs, right? And the chance of default may be less. And this is also based on repeat purchases at a particular platform. And there are consequences to that. How do you think about balancing growth and profitability, right? And also considering that there's a real second order effect for lending partners and for uh, marketplaces and whatnot, right? I mean, so how how does that figure in your scheme of things? Sure, I think so. Uh, it's a very relevant thing, especially in current times where unit economics and profitability have come to the forefront and growth has taken a backseat in various conversations. For us, it has always been about balancing the two. I think considering it's a end-use defined closed-loop supply chain finance product, inherently Russian because we get a lot of comfort through the buyer-supplier relationship and the data around it, the inherent risk in our business is low. And if we do the underwriting well, if we are able to assess those transactional risk as well as uh, credit risk through the the data that is present in credit bureau, GST transactions, as well as the transaction data that the marketplace or the anchor provides us. I think so far we've seen that we've not reached any point in time a stage where the portfolio has shown us any signs of trouble. We've had a fairly consistent run. In fact, we've built this business during COVID and it was the time when most of the lenders were shying away from giving any kind of incremental exposure to small businesses, especially SMEs, because that was the worst impacted segment. Uh, but what we saw is that while our customers may delay payments, because it's an SME after all, and they don't have fixed cash, but they don't default. Even during the COVID second wave, where we saw some increase in delays in payments, we didn't see any kind of a spike that we need to worry about in terms of our credit losses. Until today, date, I think, most of our lenders uh, who have been working with us from day one, we've had a journey where our cost of capital has come down because our portfolio has proven that it holds. We constantly work around growing the portfolio in terms of adding more and more marketplaces and adding more customer segments. But we also use that data quite cautiously to ensure that we never fall out in terms of our unit economics. It's not easy, if you ask. It's a very tough call at a lot of places where we have to balance growth and economic. But I think we have to look at it from two ways. One is what are those levers that are pure growth drivers for the company? We look at them differently. And what are those levers which are pure profitability drivers? And can I combine the two? It's very difficult for, let's say, a particular line of business or a particular partnership that we do to give us both. We've gone and worked with some of the category leading B2B marketplaces who have given a scale, but maybe not at the right of commercials that we want. Thinner margins. Obviously, we have never done business at a loss, but thin margin. And then there are partners who are maybe not at the highest scale, but then we have a bargaining power and we command the commercials we want. From. So I think it's a balanced approach that we've taken. It's kind of a portfolio mix, one would say, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, what's heartening is that, you know, there's a, a real movement I see that, you know, a lot of people are trying to serve uh, SMEs, right? And, and you know, 15 years back when I started with startups and whatnot, I mean, uh, SMEs were an anathema, right? I mean, they would not pay well. And uh, really, I mean, technology adoption was low and whatnot. But right now you're seeing that, you know, there are tons of solutions and a lot of this enabling infrastructure coming about for SMEs. 
Uh, and I really think that SMEs are kind of the backbone of the economy, right? Uh, not just in terms of just hard GDP numbers, but also in terms of employment and other things. What are your lessons from working with uh, these folks, right? I mean, uh, certainly, you know, they have, a, they come from a different mindset, you know, not the VC funded or the, or the startup circles. What are some two or three things that you have learned from them that you sort of incorporate in your uh, business? Yes, I think one thing is they they all mean pure dhanda or business. If you have to talk to them, you have to talk in business language. Anything superficial doesn't fly. If you have to convey something to them, you have to talk in terms of numbers. You have to give them the value that it brings to them. That's number one. Number two is that most small businesses in India, especially the retailers, they are not looking at any short-term gain. I think they do this business in and out, day and out, day and night on a regular basis. I mean, how many Kirana shops, for example, from your childhood have you seen shut down? These are businesses that carry on for generations. What is very important is if you build a relationship with them, you'll have a very long customer lifetime value. So while acquiring them is tricky, but once you acquire them, I think retaining them is going to reap a lot of benefits. So what we focus on is how do we continuously engage and retain our customers. Uh, retention is more important than acquisition. Also, these SMEs, they don't have the intention to go bad, but their business is volatile. Their business is, in a lot of cases, seasonal. We have to give them flexibility. For example, if I have a 15-day credit product, there is a very high chance that during 12 months period, there would be two or three months where that SME may require five days additional grace period. Because his cash flows are stuck somewhere. His customers are maybe taking time to pay or there is some pending payment expected from somewhere. If I don't give flexibility and on the 16th day, I start charging him late. And on the 16th day, I start reporting him as one day, day one DPD to the bureau. That's not going to help. So can we create flexibility in the product? Can we create a feature that 15 days is your period? But I would give you a five-day grace period so that, you know, you can take care of these volatilities and seasonalities. So what we've done is we've been very flexible around the product. With that. I think that's really helped us. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the macro environment right now, right? I mean, uh, clearly there's a sort of a slowdown, right? Funding has uh, dried up. Uh, in fact, I was looking at the year-on-year -year numbers and it's a pretty significant drop, right? I mean, I think something like 70% or something. Uh, but but then also, I mean, 2021 was, you know, such an exceptional year. But, you know, there's a lot of doom and gloom, right? In this kind of a scenario, what are your thoughts on building during this time? You know, I mean, if there are other founders who are listening to this, what are some two or three things that have worked for you? In in fact, I mean, you guys started at a very uh, difficult time as well, right? I mean, you, you started and then COVID happened, right? What are some things that you are practicing right now to keep sane during these crazy times? Yeah, I think this is the time to only build. <laughs> and my message to my team also has been that, you know, it's going to be long. The winter is going to last. I've spoken to close to two dozen investors over the last three months. I think the sentiment across the globe because of public tech markets, because of inflation, because of war, because of rising rates, because of currencies seeing a, some kind of trend that they have not seen in decades, bond markets getting impacted. Everything is just hinting towards another slowdown. And it's just the beginning. Every three months I hear from people that this is just the beginning. 
and then another quarter passes and then people say no this is just the beginning so we still don't know when the dip will come so it's very important for us to a preserve cash b extend runway as much as possible the other thing is this is the time when there is no pressure on founders to show exceptional growth month on month growth i was just doing the calculation month on month growth of 5% if you do consistently that's 80% growth annually and if you do 80% growth annually for 8 years your business grows 100x i mean that's not bad at all but it's about consistency i mean it's about being diligent to ensure you grow 5% month on month so these are not times where you know investors expect you to triple your business or 5x your business every year and that gives you a lot of comfort and breathing space to build launch new products go to the market talk to your customers talk to your partners we are doing all that we are actually going to deep pockets of the country talking to these retailers and understanding what are your other pain points can i solve something through my uh, today we have like access to 150000 retailer that's not a small number we can always go back to them and ask relevant questions and then understand what are their other pain points and build for them so i think this is time for people to do that rather than just go and splurge money acquiring customers right um yeah wise words i should say hey this has been a fun chat i mean uh, you know we've delved into multiple different aspects of the business and also you know your personal views on some of this stuff has been really interesting as well uh, before we end the podcast uh, you know what are some books or podcasts that uh, you would recommend to our listeners in terms of books i'm not a very avid reader but uh, one book that i would recommend definitely and i think a lot of people would have already said that before me is hard thing about hard things of course it's uh, the most uh, recommended book on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's an amazing book would definitely recommend that podcast i think the hbr idea cast is a i think gives a lot of flavor on various aspects so yeah i would recommend that awesome thanks so much for making the time really appreciate it i know thank it's pretty late so in the much, evening Rosh. so i will i will let you continue thanks okay. and yeah all the best for everything that thanks you have so coming much. up If you enjoyed this podcast consider subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite platform also get updates delivered straight to your WhatsApp inbox by clicking on the link in the description